with affordable housing and homelessness being a hot topic at the moment. Not just here in Chattanooga, but really in cities all across the United States. This has been a huge challenge for many years, and it's been a huge challenge this year in particular. Um, so Sam Wolf is our guest in the studio, Director of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And Sam, it's nice to have you in the studio. Thank you. Happy to be here. I know yep. i got big shoes to fill with Mayor Kelly not being here, but I'm going to do my best. Ah, we booted the mayor and got an expert. That's what we did today. <laughs> now, uh, give the listeners a little bit uh, of information about your background first. You are not new to the city of Chattanooga under Mayor T- uh, Tim Kelly. You've been working with the city, I think, for a few years now. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working in homelessness or kind of homeless adjacent services for the past eight years um, here locally. I, I worked everything from outpatient mental health, inpatient mental health, part of the crisis response team. I did street outreach with uh, homeless health care. They're an amazing organization on the front lines doing health care for people on the streets. Um, and then I joined the city under the Burke administration as their home, their coordinator of homeless services and then kind of went through this process of building out the city's own internal ser- uh, homeless service program and then got appointed as Mayor Kelly's Director of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. So you, having all those years of experience, you've seen the the wave of homelessness, the ebb and the flow. How do you compare where we are in 2022, which seems to me, like the average Chattanooga, that it is as bad as it's been? You know, That's just from anecdotal observation on my part. You've actually seen it over, over a period of years, and you've actually charted it. So, so where is it really? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be an expert to see that homelessness is a, in our community is at an all-time high, um, and there's just more people out in the streets than there ever has been before. And, and that kind of feeling that you're, you're having now is backed up by numbers uh, that our, our service system is tracking. You know, the, the pandemic was, was really hard economically on so many people in our community. You think at the, the time where people in service industries lost their jobs for extended periods. A lot of folks who were living paycheck to paycheck, you know, didn't have the money to pay their bills moving forward. Simultaneously, in that same period, the cost of housing in the last two years in Chattanooga has skyrocketed, right? And it's, it's not just people experiencing homelessness. It's people like me and my wife who were trying to buy a house and got outbid by on eight different houses before we were able to purchase our most recent house do yeah. we do we have a number on uh, the approximate number of homeless people in the city of chattanooga at the moment yeah so the that's a great question and, and i think the, the the better way to think about it is how many people will become homeless over a certain period of time because it's not typically like a static number right like at, there's we could take a snapshot right now at this moment but if you if you measure the same volume of people over a month or a year um, a lot of people will dip a toe into homelessness and kind of flow out. Right. The the metaphor I always use is homelessness is kind of like a, a, a pool that has built up in a stream, right? You have a, an inflow to that pool. You have an outflow to the pool. If you have more people flowing into the pool than are flowing out of the pool, the pool is going to grow, right, which is exactly what we're seeing in our community. Um, our last point in time count that was conducted in January of last year, like a, a great snapshot picture, but should absolutely be seen as the, the floor, not the ceiling on this, right? Um, had about 600 people on the wow. that, and that are experiencing homelessness at any given time. Yeah. Um, the the total number of people that will be homeless over the course of a year is is in the neighborhood of, of thousands of people, right? Did you do another snapshot survey this January? Yes, we did, and wow. those those results uh, in partnership with the Chattanooga Regional Homeless Coalition are kind of they're going through a data validation period. There's a couple things with the weather and some staffing that pushed that out a little bit, and we the by all indication, that number is going to go up significantly. Uh, we should have more, like the official number released in the, kind of the coming weeks or so as they kind of present that information to HUD. But there's some technical things they need to do to verify some of those numbers. So what you mentioned, you, you mentioned affordability. Because 
because it, it doesn't seem that, that finding a job is an issue, that you can find a job. It's still affording housing seems to be an issue. We, did, uh, we, uh, we had, had a study come out oh, maybe three weeks ago or so now. I uh, talk about the average uh, or the median price for a one-bedroom apartment in Chattanooga. I think it was like $1,040 as the median. Yeah. I don't know what affordable is. That seems high. Yeah. How, how do we define affordable and how much affordability do we have right so the 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 best way to think about this is um, the federal government says no one should be spending more than 30 percent of their income towards housing anyone that's spending more than that is considered rent burdened right for a lot of the people listening they're going to be you know looking at their the cost of their housing yeah, and saying, well hey yeah. you know, and that's a significant <laughs> portion of people in chattanooga right absolutely in, in and there's even a classification above that if you're spending 50 percent of your more of income towards housing and that's you know a, a, a significant chunk of the population as well there was this, this fascinating study that Zillow put out a few years ago, right? You know, the, 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 the app that people used to buy homes and rent as well. There's a direct correlation in, in communities where the, the percentage of people who become rent burdened, as that increases, the, their overall homeless population directly increases as well. So it, it fundamentally is that problem, right? Like a people like not being, getting, like the, the probability that someone gets behind on their bills, something happens, they have unexpected expense, suddenly they can't make their payments and they're out in the street, right? The issue then is, are they able to find something while they're while they're homeless to quickly get off the streets? Right, as you mentioned, some people they may be still working or doing whatever they need to do, you know, to to make ends meet while they're on the streets. But the longer they are on the streets, the more likely it is for them to you know miss their miss a shift, get fired, you know, all these bad things to kind of happen to them. And so it's like if they don't have those options to quickly flow out of that pool they're going to be more likely to sit in that pool. What are the options for the city? Because so many times, I mean, you hear people saying that the city needs to do something about affordable housing. They need to address this problem. Well, you know, if if you look at the numbers and look at the issue the way you just kind of laid it out for us, uh, you know, housing costs what it costs. I mean, uh, on the free market, this is what developers will charge for a home or to rent an apartment. Um, you know, employers are going to pay what they pay. It's not like the city can step in and say, you must raise your wages. It's not like the city can step in and tell land developers, you have to lower your prices. Uh, you know, the most famous example, New York City was a trailblazer going back to the decades where they had rent control in place. But I mean, aside from that, what measures can the city take to, to ensure that there's "Quote unquote affordable housing." It's it's really not in your hands. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a problem that exists all throughout the country, and there's there's no city that has completely solved this problem. There's some communities that are doing better or worse. You know, again, I think it's like, are we moving in the right direction? Or are we moving in the wrong direction? Um, I think there are things that we can do as a, as a city to to try to offset some of those costs because it is fundamentally an issue of supply and demand, right? Like mm-hmm. we in Chattanooga are in a limited demand market. The 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 or limited supply market, the demand is at an all-time high for people wanting to come to this community and you know enjoy some of the great amenities we have, the great quality of life. Um, but it, it looks like the city doing things to incentivize density and creating more to that supply. Talking to Sam Wolf from the city of Chattanooga here about homelessness this morning. And, and you know as well as I do, it's not just homelessness, but anything else, that as long as it doesn't affect me, it is not a problem. It is, uh, but, but homelessness... Has reached a level where where we've got aggressive panhandling going on, uh, where businesses have to they they have to take steps to 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 keep the people from in front of their business because they're detracting from the business because nobody's coming in because they don't want to be bothered by the aggressive panhandlers. So so have we reached that point where all right, 
Now, now we got to get serious about this. We got to do something about this. Yeah, I think we'll, we we have been serious over the last few years. It's just yeah. the the problems are all time. The factors leading into homelessness, right? Like the the economic upheaval, the housing costs are are these huge, you know, like colossal forces that are battling like us and contributing this factor. But I absolutely agree with you that that you know the the more people that are on the streets. The, the higher probability that someone's going to have a negative interaction with someone experiencing homelessness, right? And, and I, I hear concern from our housed residents all the time of you know having these negative interactions, you know, these pain points that people on the streets are caused, or that that they cause. And you know I'm I'm very empathetic to their plight, and that that doesn't mean that we can ignore these problems as a city. That doesn't mean that you know just because someone's experiencing homelessness doesn't mean they get you know carte blanche to do whatever they want. Like we are all bound by a society by the laws that are in place. I think you know when when folks are on the streets, it's it's harder at times to kind of enforce some of those laws because you know it's it's harder to kind of maintain like they have an address. It's harder to contract some of these people down. That's a lot of the, the the feedback I get from our law enforcement partners of like you know hey it's it's harder for us to close out some of these cases. But I think you know another point of this too is like the the people on the streets themselves are becoming victimized, right? Like the folks that are out in encampments, they can have their belongings stolen, they can be assaulted or, or worse a lot of times. And there, there's very little recourse at times for those people to be held accountable for their actions. Um, as it, it just, I think it's just a numbers problem. As the more people we have out on the streets, the more likelihood it's just going to cause issues. And over this past year, it, the um, in 2020, 2021, excuse me, we had an 80 percent increase to our unsheltered population. That's just people staying out on the streets, like you know, on, staying living in encampments, etc. But even this past year, that number is going to go up significantly. We don't have the official figure, but again, it's going to go up, up substantially. And that's reflective of people seeing more tents out, people seeing more people sleeping in doorways. Um, and we got to get creative to the solutions to, to get these people a place to stay while we're working to get them into housing. Again, our guest here is Sam Wolf, Director of Homelessness and Supportive Housing with the City of Chattanooga. And uh, Sam, we were talking about creative ways to address homelessness. Uh, in the past couple of days, there was a little bit of a controversy because there was one member of the community who was constructing uh, temporary huts, sheds for homeless people thought it was a you know a great idea. He's just trying to help. Uh, the city's fire marshal and the mayor stepped in and said it was deemed that uh, that these tiny houses that he was building are not exactly safe and up to code. What exactly was that all about? Yeah, absolutely. I think just a, a point to, to make in this, you know, the word kind of tiny home has been thrown out uh, uh, in regards to these structures, but I definitely want to point out that, you know, they're, they're not being constructed to any type of code. There's not any type of oversight or kind of guidance on, you know, what are the safety features that would need to be in more of like a traditional tiny home or micro dwelling unit. Um, and really, they're just you know pieces of plywood that have some framing internally um, to kind of provide people uh, a bit of a rain and windbreak. Um, and and really, the kind of the point that the fire marshal made around this is like, hey, this is, these are all very flammable um, items that you're using. They're wrapped in plastic. Like if there were to be you know someone that has a, a propane heater inside sure. and that you know, were to fall over, it could become a death trap for people. And so that really was you know the, the source of our concern on it is. You know, we we absolutely want to do everything we can to help people. We're, we're not opposed to tiny homes as a concept, but when they're constructed in a way that they meet safety standards. We were talking about this uh, well-intentioned uh, member of the community who was constructing, you know, a portable temporary sheds made out of plywood for homeless people. You know, just trying to help, thought this would be uh, helpful. And, you know, your point was, the fire marshal's point was, is, is that... Uh, in addition to having walls and a roof, which is important for a homeless person, but it's also cold out there. And so 
they're going to have to heat themselves up, get warm. How do homeless people typically do that? They might light a fire. Uh, they might have a propane tank. They might have a, some kind of a portable space heater if they have you know any kind of a power generator or whatever. And I think the point that the mayor was trying to make is that when you're in a tiny little hut made out of plywood and you've got an open flame inside there, that could become deadly very fast. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that we've you know, unfortunately seen an increase in the the number of fires just in structures that are not like this. You know, like that we've had a lot of reports come into the fire department responding to, to fires and homeless encampments recently. And one lady that I personally know who unfortunately has been homeless since my street outreach days, you know, several years ago, mm. was burned so bad that she had to be airlifted to a hospital in Georgia to be treated. And so, you know, there's there's, there's definitely these life-threatening situations. And if you kind of up that risk factor for folks, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you don't want to be airlifted to that burn hospital in Georgia. When you, that's bad. Yep. That, that's a bad burn. And, yep. and, you know, we have, like you said, seen in vacant structures because you try to get in out of the cold, then you start something on fire to keep warm, and, and there you go. And we've had a lot of fires. We just had the fire department folks on, uh, Damian Vincent, the captain, and, and, and uh, been a lot of fires recently, over this winter period, for sure. Yeah. Texter here asks, uh, please ask Sam, who's in charge of cleaning up after these tent cities and, and huts? Uh, Workman Road is covered in litter, old couches, old mattresses, etc. Let, let's take a moment to try to address that, because... We do get phone calls a lot. Um, you know, you see the 10 cities pop up from place to place, and they'll be in one spot for six months until eventually, you know, a neighbor complains or there's an issue, police step in, and uh, they pick up the camp and they move to another location. Uh, you know, what, again, what can the city, what does the city do to either address that, monitor it, clean up after them, make sure these 10 cities and encampments are safe? Yeah, absolutely. I would say to your to your listener, um, as we talked about earlier, you know, just because people are experiencing homelessness doesn't mean that they're not bound by the same rules that we all are. Uh, if there's trash or kind of other you know nuisances in the, on their property, you can contact three one one. They can have a code inspector or specialist go out and kind of assess the situation to see if they're in violation of city codes per litter. Um, and then it, it typically falls onto the property owner to to clean up the the property if it's in a public right of way or if it's city owned property. We'll have public works go out and do that that clean up ourselves, but typically it falls on the property owner. The thing that we're trying to do to kind of help with all these issues, specifically around you know encampments and, and unsheltered homelessness, is we're working on our, our uh, sanctioned encampment project over on 12th Street, right by the community kitchen, um, and it, it will be maximum capacity of 120 spots. You know, we're, we're going to be very intentional with adding people over time to that, but that's basically a site that has uh, staff that are there, has security. That you know, people go through an intake process. They're given a, a place to stay there. You know, and they can not nest, they don't have to be run off or you know go through this kind of turmoil of you know finding a new location and be in that flux of unsheltered homelessness. But it hopefully will give them the stability where they can work to ultimately get into housing and get into the programs that are going to ultimately resolve their homelessness. You know, you've got encampments that that are fairly well known. You know, like uh, Workman Road, somebody mentioned, uh, the I-75, I-24 interchange, um, you had the west side and all. Is there a particular level that a camp reaches when you, uh, that that you then say, we got to do something about this. This is, this is too big. This is like a city into itself or, or whatever. Is there a particular level that, that then spurs some kind of action on the part of the city? Yeah, I think it, it really is a case by case scenario, you know, and we, Typically, the by the time an encampment grows to a certain volume, 
the property owner will kind of be made aware through a variety of methods, including, you know, code enforcement or just people saying, hey, you got a bunch of people staying on your property. And it really is, it's the prerogative of the, of the property owner if they're going to allow those people to stay there or not. You know, we are, we will never in the city say that to a property owner, you must allow these people to stay here. They're, they're private citizens. They own that property. It's, they have their rights to, to kind of manage it how they see fit. And so really, like, the majority of these locations being on private property kind of are in that flux of the property owner kind of being like, well, it's fine with one person staying here, now there's 12, so I don't, you know, it's like it kind of reaches, the, everyone kind of has their own threshold for that. But really, I, I think the thing, you know, on our end from the city is, you know, we have to invest in, in the solutions that are going to fix this problem. Everything we do, like, that is not housing with support services is just punting on this. It's just moving the water around with the dirty mop. The, the housing with the support services that get people off the streets is the thing that ultimately resolve the problem and, and cause and, and, and cease these issues that are causing. I think that might lead into an answer to the next question, because we've already gotten a text uh, from a listener uh, addressing this. But but I've oftentimes heard this counter argument that, uh, you know, if you build more shelters or offer more incentive not incentives but uh well, like hotel rooms you know people hotel talk about rooms, that all the time. things yeah. like this and, and and people view that and say well won't homeless populations look at that as an incentive now you've got homeless populations from other cities moving into chattanooga because they hear you know in chattanooga we've got a pretty good deal there there's hotel rooms available there's plenty more shelter beds so i i don't know if you put much uh you know, much legitimacy into that argument, but uh, there is kind of like two ways of looking at that. Yeah, you know, absolutely, and and that's something that I, I hear a lot from people. You know, we the, the 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 kind of the mentality that there are people coming to this community from other communities. I, I think there for folks who are in the homeless population, been homeless for a long time, there is this kind of transientness to to some of the people in the population. However, I would say the vast majority of people who are homeless in, in this community are have lived here for several years minimum, right? Like there has been studies that have been conducted in numerous cities uh, across the country looking at like, hey, how many people are, are, are local residents versus how many people are transient? And those studies consistently find that like 70 to 80% of their population, you know, sometimes even higher, are local residents. And we've, we've kind of conducted a, a few of those preliminary studies, which are kind of small things when we go to these encampments and, and kind of, you know, go through the process of resolving them, getting people linked to services if they're available. And that figure holds true that the vast majority of people are from here. But I, again, I think it, it's like, it's something that we have to invest in the solutions. And we have made those investments in the past, like, the work that we did in, in establishing our Office of Homelessness and Supportive Housing with our housing navigators, case managers, outreach team. like We've housed over 1,200 people in the three years that that program has existed, um, but there's still more people growing. And so in, in that's housing activities that take place by other our, our other community partners like the, the, the community kitchen, like the room in the inn. Salvation Army, Volunteer Behavioral Health, the AIM Center, all these people are, are working to get people off the streets. It's just an issue of needing more capacity in those programs to get people to actually make a dent in the problem. 267-1023 is the telephone line, and Ali is on line one. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks. Let's see. we got we got Ali up, I think, there, Max. You're with a situation where you're on a fixed income, and you're, you, know, you, know, you get a new landlord, and they double your rent. Yeah, Ali, what, do you, what what do you suppose? Uh, there should be some kind of law that if, if if different folks, different strokes. Everybody don't have that paper like some people do, but there should be a law that give you some kind of uh, a thirty day or sixty day notice to get out of there because if you don't have that paper like that, you're stuck. 
Well, Ali, that does go back. I'm I'm glad you called in because it's worth revisiting. Uh, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about off the top of the hour here, Sam, is that, uh, you know, this, the, the, the city, as well-intentioned as it might be, we need to address uh, affordable housing and wages. And But short of stepping in and telling, you know, landlords and developers and, and employers what they can and cannot charge, what they can and cannot pay you in terms of wages, uh, you know, it's not like the city can step in and make those demands of, uh, of a private company or organization, but... Um, I suppose Ali is correct. You know, there are other things that uh, that maybe the city can do. Pass an ordinance that states, you know, you must have 30 days, 60 days notice. I, I don't know if there are plans yes. like that in place. So the, the most common mechanism that we have to address that is in kind of building you know, financial incentive packages for developers. We'll say, okay, you can make a, a certain portion of your these units affordable for, per like what we call the area median income or AMI. Depending on those different brackets, you know, it, there's different. So, what does affordable mean? When you say affordable, what what's the price range of that? Yeah, no more than thirty percent of one's income, right? And so it depends heavily on what like income bracket they fall into, right? And so some people that are sixty percent AMI, it's going to be higher than folks that are forty percent AMI, but it's still no more than than thirty percent. And so it's really it's kind of a dynamic calculation based on the the threshold you in it, you want to set for that AMI. Complicated way to basically say that like it, it depends on one's income that you go, are going to this property. And so really the, the, the mechanism that we have for that is just having those agreements with developers, having those agreements with landlords, and we need, we need just more of them. Really, one of the things that we have been relying for so long are just private landlords that are willing to take Section 8 vouchers. Um, we, the Housing Authority has been a tremendous partner for us in making those available. But that, that still, there's no um, mandate for the, the landlord to take those vouchers. Right, and so if the market is is outpacing those vouchers like it has been locally, they're going to say, "Well, well, no, thank you. I, I'm going to go market rate." And so, really, we're we're looking to develop more incentive package. We had our, our landlord summit that my team put on recently to kind of work with landlords, um, create more incentives for them. We announced our, our landlord mitigation fund that will kind of offset potential damages for people renting from our program, and it's just really kind of building that relationship with private landlords and creating more um, dedicated units that developers are creating and having more of those agreements. Here's a good question from a texter. Does the city have any programs in place working with local small businesses to help get jobs for the homeless? I think a job in actual affordable housing uh, may help. I've, I've heard about, uh, you know, programs like that in different places where you'll have a, you know, a small business owner who, who, who hires like a certain percentage of the workforce is, is local homeless people that they're trying to get off the streets. Do, do we partner up in any kind of programs like that? Yeah, I think it's definitely an area of growth that we have. I had a conversation with my leadership team yesterday about, you know, creating more of those partnerships internally with our own program. You know, if you look at system wide, there's, there's definitely a room for growth in terms of how we are linking, you know, people exiting homelessness to mm-hmm. gainful employment. Um, I think the thing that's really hard, though, is for people who are on the streets to maintain their employment. Yeah. If, you're, if you're sleeping in a tent, if you're having to move your your um, where your tent is, and you're kind of going through this, the day-to-day struggles of survival, it's really hard to hold employment. You know, um, Steve Brooks of the Downtown Alliance talked to me about this the other day. He was like, you know, I'd love to hire more people experiencing homelessness ambassadors. They're you know, people that want to you know, show up and do a good job. But it's just so hard for them to stay, be consistent and fulfill my needs as an employer. And so it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a catch-22. It's you know, getting them off the streets and getting them into housing where they can be stable enough to find a job, but also you know, being able to have a job to pay for their housing. You know, that's interesting. Sometimes you, you know, as, as people who are not 
homeless or we've never experienced homelessness, you kind of forget about that. I mean, how does your day typically start? You wake up, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you get in your car, you drive to work, and you're at your office by a certain time. Well, okay, imagine that you don't have a home, you don't have a bed, you don't have a shower, you don't have a toothbrush, you don't have a car. It's not as easy as just show up to work. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's that's where we have programs that are a model called rapid rehousing. And so that's where we, you know, we work with someone, they're on the streets, they're in a shelter, get them placed in with the landlord. We have um, the the money to offset the cost of their, their move-in, a few months' rent, and stuff like that. And then we kind of work on that, the job placement and, and getting people that gain full employment in a set time period. for uh, they, they will be working with that case manager after they're housed. And that model is, is really effective. That's the, the 1,200 people that we've housed in the city's program that's, that have gone through that model. And, you know, the vast majority of those people are still you know, successfully housed. System-wide, statistically, 91% of the people we house that are, are going from homelessness stay in housing as we me- measure the two-year mark after their move-in date. Mm. So, again, these programs are, are successful in getting people off the streets. It's just that you know, it's, it's, there's just more people than ever have been before. The other thing I, I, I want to distinguish to the listeners is there's kind of really two broad categories of people experiencing homelessness. We have our chronic homeless population, those are the folks that are, are struggling with mental health, substance abuse, or, or physical right. disabilities. Yeah. And then you basically have everyone else. Right. Right. Like the chronic homeless people are the more stereotypical people. They're more visible. The people like have a lot of uh, potentially negative interactions with them due to the mental health issues and whatnot. But then the, this whole other group, if we're not getting them housed, they will age into chronicity, right? The, the, the guy that, you know, let's say had a little bit of a drinking problem. He, he yeah, got right. fired because he, he didn't get show up. He's out on the street. Suddenly he's you know, drinking a pint of something under an, uh, an overpass to try to fall asleep. There, there was a lot of that during the pandemic, yeah. just people who died, lost income for six months. Yeah, and the, the trauma of, of being out on the streets and having to survive, right? Like it's 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 traumatizing for folks. And so it it, 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 it breeds this these worse outcomes for folks. And so that's why there's this tremendous sense of urgency when folks are on the streets, like, you know, they're yeah. homelessness, we want to get them out. And the folks who are, are chronic homeless, like the, the number of, of spots that we have available for them, you know, I hear this all the time, it's like people wanted help, they could go get it. We, we've had, you know, a, like approximately 20 like turnovers in our permit supportive housing units locally. There's at least 300 chronic homeless people in our mm. community. Mm. So there's just not enough spaces for them. If every single one of those people like showed up and were banging on the doors of places to get help every single day, we just couldn't get them yeah. housed. 